You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your murder mystery world tour. And we are back with another classic novel from the Golden Age, Traitor's Purse by Marjorie Allingham. Yay. We are discussing chapters one to seven, the 11th novel in the Albert Campion series. That sounds right to me. It's pretty far in there. Um, as, I, as I've alluded to previously, it is not probably the most well-known of the Albert Campion series, but... I really didn't want to start with either a novel that has no detection at all, yeah. or like the first novel because that's that's fun. We we just we just came from a first exactly. novel, you know. I we got to vary it up a little bit. I want to just dive into the center of it, and when I found out that one of the Campion novels begins with him amnesiac in a hospital trying to piece together his life yeah. from scraps of his memory, I was like, "That's it." It is that. <laughs> it is so bold to start the. 11th novel yeah. with that particular plot hook. It's so like, good. you know, Jason Bourne, the Bourne identity begins at the very opening with him being an amnesiac, not knowing how he has all of these skills, not knowing how he knows where all of these pieces of equipment that he's left around Europe have been, mm-hmm. you know, scattered. But in the 11th Albert Campion <laughs> novel, we're kind of reintroduced to him from scratch as he re-meets himself. And it's incredible to be honest it's honestly so exciting watching him go from because the, the opening of the book is not just that he has amnesia in hospital but apparently he's killed a police officer so he has to like macgyver his way out of that situation he like finds a fireman's outfit he considers like stashing hair clips and things like it's it's crazy it's crazy he basically yeah. fumbles his way from one situation to the next mm-hmm. he figures out he's being followed by a car he think he fears the worst finds out it might be his wife behind the wheel but like he's not even sure of that he's not even sure of his own name uh it's i mean i think that the sense of fun in this novel uh even though we are like you know we're set in london during the wartime there might be some political undertones going on here and and whoa 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 halt your horses and political undertones in a war novel (laughs) but like Allingham is committed to keeping things relatively light and and fun. My favorite part of this novel is how she describes. She often describes people like she she talks about uh, Campion like he's a he's a cat burglar like all the time. Yeah, and she's often describing the city itself like it's a person. Clearly, she has a lot of love for like. London and I mean this isn't technically in London this is set in a town called Bridge but like which has no bridges <laughs> exactly it has no bridges but like it's a made up town it is the Britain town uh, and clearly she is excited to to tell us the atmosphere of a a half country half metropolized town it's like what we're here for wow weirdly analogous to the united kingdom in a is a strange way that i'm sure will have no bearing on the rest of the plot sure it won't (laughs) also i do want to say before i lose my train of thought i love how because she keeps describing things as having eyes and having presences like the car the headlight like everything drives the paranoia that campion is feeling every second of his life there is such high tension in this novel because he's constantly tripping from wire to wire. I love it. It's so fun. One thing that you do get out of that is that there's this really nice play between the familiarity that Allingham clearly has in writing all of these characters and new information that you get because he's relearning everything. There is a almost ruthless efficiency to the way that we find out things, but it never feels sparse. And I, I kind of really enjoyed that. Well, I think what really makes the balance work, like uh, for this as an amnesiac story, 
is that Campion, as far as everybody else knows, he's the only man who both can solve everything and knows everything. Yes. But in reality, he knows nothing. And so characters are both completely comfortable with just spilling all of their beans. You know, they're going to tell us about the secret history behind the town <laughs> and like the, the Mason society that exists here. Whoa. But also he's like, what day is it? And the characters are like, why would you need to ask that? I don't understand Campion. <laughs> like, Can I say, I, I, I meant to mention this earlier, but I definitely the first time they said they were having a bridge meeting because yes. they were talking about the, the board game. I, yeah, I definitely had that problem through most of the novel. I <laughs> I don't know why. I just thought- It's absolutely on purpose, right? It has the to bridge, be. The master's a bridge. You know, they play bridge yeah, together, bridge. clearly. You know, the bridge game that we know and love. <laughs> uh, clearly, that's what's going on. I mean, Herds, I'm surprised you haven't spoken about Amanda yet. The the position that we're being put in here, because as you say, this is the 11th story in Campion's journey, give or take. And he's had this kind of, will they, won't they relationship with Amanda. My understanding is that they pledged themselves to each other when she was 17. And now in this novel, it is a month before they're supposed to be married. And they're kind of like, I don't know if we really want to do this or not, but like clearly they should, you know, in the author's <laughs> mind. And so we're using- But, but she's falling in love with Lee Aubrey, who definitely is not evil. He's not evil. He's just a really smart He's guy. He's not evil. Who has a cool party. <laughs> He's got a deep voice, runs a secret society. <laughs> He's a really cool guy. I don't know what you're talking really about. Really cool. But like we're using the amnesiac plot trope to allow Campion to see his love in new eyes, to judge yeah. impartially. But the way that she treats him and like looks after him, he thinks immediately, oh, we must be married. Yeah. We, we must be destined for each other. And then when she says, actually, I'm thinking we won't get married, it, it basically kills him. He's basically a dead man walking. I suppose we should talk about that secret society, the uh, Institute of Bridge. Yeah, the Institute, yeah. It's this like- kind of weird two-sided thing where it has been reinforced through public money but is also like probably way more flush with cash than it should be for that being true well it gives the impression of a house that has a lot of age to it where a lot of the a lot of the property a lot of the furnishings have been kept around because yeah they've just always been there but also, as you say, that they they have the money for it. You know, they have their money for well, whatever it is that they do. Yeah, it's specifically they say things had been obtained with a splendid disregard of cost. Yeah, they just don't care. <laughs> it's kind of strange. I, I really enjoy the description, honestly, because it gives the mind that there are both practical people and ostentatious people, but that money is not something that they really think about. Runs a bit parallel to the the, the device, <laughs> the traders' purse, as it were. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there, there's a lot of stuff I think that I could speculatively unpack here to do with like how they call it so-called philanthropy, sure. and it presents itself as an academic institution, but doesn't seem to be anything as such. It's like it has all of the hallmarks of a modern think tank. If you if you can find kind of yep. follow that train of thought, like I'm with that, it is a bunch of people standing around discussing what they think policy should be, while kind of having no reason or claim to expertise on how policy works. Well, the the impression is again that 
it wouldn't really affect them that much anyway. It doesn't really matter mm. how the general public is affected by their decisions, only that they continue to run. Yeah. The curious thing is, of course, that we've also been introduced to this se- the secret tunnels under the town, mm. which may or may not be a different, equally secretive secret society. But yeah, there's a lot of weird stuff going on in this town. <laughs> to, to, to say the least. Mm. I suppose the uh, last thing that I, I did want to mention that we've kind of glossed over no. is that the cast is very small in this novel. Like, yeah. even when we do have the Bridge Institute and everyone shows up for the party, we get a bigger introduction to uh, Stanislaus Oates, mm. who sends, a, who, who like, has a letter planted in Campion's room great. before he gets there than we do anyone who's actually at the party. I, I will say, though, just while we're talking about the cast, I know you might think, man, Herd's here, he's going to pick Amanda as his favorite character. I think it might have to go to Hutch. I think Hutch might be my oh, favorite yeah, character. I don't think that little so, of you, Herd. He is, you better not. He is <laughs> such a fun guy. And as I, he's and one of those characters who's just like, I'm going to spill all the beans and I'm going to trust you to keep up with me. Oh, I mean, listen, when he shows up at the window in yes. the dead of night at the start of chapter seven, like, and he's like, oh, did I misunderstand your message, yes. Campion? Like, I thought this is what you wanted from me. Yes, there's a lot of that in this novel. And honestly, it's my favorite, like, trope that this novel uses when yeah. two, he, you know, Campion stumbles into somebody he should know. And they kind of fumble through a, through a scene. And afterwards, the character goes, well, I didn't quite follow what you were wanting from me, Campion, but I hope I did okay. I hope I lived up to yeah, your standards. I I Everyone, everyone's expecting him to be so competent yes. when he can't be in the present tense. He literally is incapable of being competent. It's fantastic. Oh, it's so good. Mm. Anyway, we should wrap this bit of the discussion here. We are talking Marjorie Allingham's The Traitor's Purse, chapters one to seven. Stick around. This is your murder mystery world tour here on 2SER 107.3. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex here with you here on your Murder Mystery World Tour. And I am currently joined by author Pamela Hart, ahead of the Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival, at which Pamela is appearing for both a panel and a workshop. We'll have details about that up on the podcast and talk a little bit more about it coming up. But I've also got Pamela on to talk about her latest release in the Poppy McGowan series, An A-List for Death. Poppy, it's so... Poppy... Pamela, it's so good to have you here on the show. Thank you. Welcome to Death of the Reader. Thanks very much. Now, there is an extended version of this where I have a few other things to ask. But here on the show, I wanted to get into your background as a children's television show researcher, which is a background you share with Poppy. And I was curious because I feel that there is a crossover there where you're almost talking about your background as a children's TV show researcher and the way that it kind of relates to your work in historical fiction. Could you tell me a bit about that relationship? One of the things about working for children's television as a researcher and scriptwriter, which I loved doing, is that you research a lot of different things that aren't necessarily associated with each other. And the same is true for historical fiction. There's kind of all these different things that you're researching, and um, whether it's Fred Astaire's autobiography, which unfortunately he never wrote, or, you know, Noel Coward, or the fact that there were all these Japanese tourists in London in 1923, which was not a thing I would have expected. Yeah. But there they were and London newspapers wrote about how polite they were. <laughs> so, yeah, you, you find yourself a bit of a jack of all trades. You know, you, you're looking at a lot of different kinds of things across a very wide range. And I think in that sense they're both they're alike. But also that being driven by curiosity, it's the same 
that's why I love both jobs. You know, you get to find stuff out. Well, yeah, I suppose the obvious follow-up question from there is, do you feel like you turning to detective-style fiction with Poppy was inevitable after going through that journey in your career? Look, I feel that now, but I didn't feel it when I wrote the book, the first book. You know, I had come out of, of doing a lot of research into nursing in World War One for Desert Nurse and, and you know, the book's not grim, but some of the research was quite grim and I just wanted to do something fun. And my friend Ron, who is Alex in the book, mm. he said, why don't you write a murder mystery? You love murder mysteries. And I went, yeah, I do actually. Um, <laughs> and, and so I, I kind of just wrote it for fun. But when I look back and I think about my read, I mean, I always have always read crime, you accumulate as you go through things like the job I had that was like poppies and the historical, you accumulate all this information about the world and about your city, my city. And I think crime is one of those genres, one of the few genres we can use all of that. Yeah. I thought it was so interesting as well, the way that in both books, you've kind of put like a twist on the standards of the genre without explicitly like breaking the mold in a way that a lot of modern crime fiction tries to do. The tweaks that you've made are so insightful I find to the way that the genre kind of operates so often in murder mystery one of the kind of key things that the detective is playing against is like either the culprit will escape or they will strike again yes and the thing that having Daisy still alive in an a-list for death does that I thought was absolutely genius is that you set up right from the start when we established that she's lost a bit of memory that yeah. she could get it back sometime soon. So there's this like ticking time bomb of she might remember what happened to her and thus the culprit is compelled to act again. Indeed. And in, I don't know if you noticed that there is, once you find out everything, if you look again at some of the hospital sequences, you'll see that she was in danger there. Yeah. Uh, but Poppy didn't realise it at the time. That was certainly one of the things was that, you know, how how many times can this poor woman be attacked? I didn't, you know, um, other things happen, obviously, and other people die, but I didn't want her to be a victim. And that partly that was selfish mm. because I really love her. She's a great character. She's one of my favourite characters ever. And she kind of came out of nowhere, really. I mean, my uh, Auntie Mary is based on my Auntie Pauline. Mm who had the life that I describe um, <laughs> for Mary. She was quite a quite a, an amazing person. But um, Daisy, Daisy just kind of came out of nowhere. And I love her and I, you know, I want to see her again. I suppose the next thing that I wanted to speak about was Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival, who have kindly afforded us the opportunity to speak today. Um, you've got two events going on. First is mystery writing. The victim is the story. That's the workshop. The other event is a panel discussion called And Now for Something Slightly Different with uh, Sue Williams, yourself, Benjamin Stevenson, facilitated by Andy Muir. Yeah. And one thing that's really curious to me is the different avenues that each of you have taken to kind of do that same thing. I'll use you and Ben yeah. as, a, as an example here. Sure. You know, one thing is like Ernest in Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone is a character who brings absurdity to situations that are mundane. He is really yeah. the problem child of his own story, and that creates a really interesting adventure. Whereas Poppy is so explicitly the opposite to me, yeah. where she is a completely normal person thrust into a situation that makes no sense. It's like, you know, she is that character who has walked into a detective novel and gone, what am I doing here? Yes, very much so. <laughs> um, and I think 
you know, people have said to me, is this a cosy mystery? Mm. And I don't think it is a cosy mystery in American terms because that they tend to be much more saccharine and also much more restrained in mm. characters and relationships and, you know, people are not supposed to have sex and stuff. Oh, shocking. Oh, no, shocking. Um, <laughs> but it does have some of the elements of that in, in that it's an ordinary person who is the sleuth mm. and it's a Miss Marple effect. And Christy set the parameters for this kind of story mm. in that it's the character's understanding of human nature that makes her, usually her, an effective sleuth. When I look at Poppy and Ernest, it's like the deaths are in a way just there so that Ernest can have a relationship with his family, whereas Poppy starts out with a perfectly good relationship yeah. with everybody. It's just the, the death has disrupted that. And I think that's the big difference between the two characters. Oh, I, I think so. And also something that you've definitely alluded to there, but I just want to kind of clarify is that like one of the best things about Poppy as a character throughout both of these novels is something you say explicitly at the start of an A-list for death where Poppy will just have people come up to her and start telling their life story. Yeah. And it's like, why is this happening? Why is this happening? Ernest is the person who would come up to Poppy and start telling oh, her. Oh, 100%. <laughs> that is so true. Um, look, this is Pop, this is another thing of mine that Poppy has. Yeah. I am the person that people tell their life story to. I've come to just accept it. Mm -hmm. That's the way it is. If I'm on public transport, someone will sit down next to me and tell me the story of their life. If I get a cab, the driver will tell me the story of their life. I mean, it's listen, just... even before we started this interview, you asked me one question and suddenly I'm off on this reminiscent story about how the show got started. I was like, Why, how did we get here? <laughs> uh, it's just what happens. It's my, I, I understand my fate, my destiny to have people. And of course, I'm interested. That's the other reason people tell me stuff. Yeah. And so is Poppy. You know, whether she bemoans it or not, she's really quite, she's interested in people and she's interested in their stories and she's nosy. But that is something that happens to me all the time. And I can absolutely imagine Ernest sitting down next to me on a train <laughs> and telling me the life story, you know, and I'd be going, can I use this, I wonder, in a book. You know? <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, it's true. It's true. She's, she's the kind of, I wanted her to be a normal person whose life gets disrupted. Mm. There's a lot to be said for a book that, that is light, even about a subject like murder, but that makes you come out of it feeling like you've had a good time mm. um, rather than that you've been on the edge of your seat. And both of them are great things, but I wanted to have the kind of, um, oh, this is fun. And what was interesting was during lockdown, I got a lot of emails from people about digging up dirt saying, I haven't been able to read, you know, I haven't been able to concentrate on, on books, but I picked up Digging Up Dirt and I just zipped through it. And I felt that as a personal triumph, I have to say. Oh, yeah. You know, I felt like that's, if you can do that for someone, um, that's, that's a job worth doing. I absolutely agree. And what a fantastic note to wrap up on. Pamela, thank you so much for coming on Death of the Reader. It has been an absolute blast having you on the show and getting the chance to uh, visit Poppy McGowan in her world, her version of Sydney. I've enjoyed it. Well, or Jordan next time. Or Jordan next time, indeed. We will have links up on the podcast to and now for something slightly different and The Victim is the Story, which are both happening at the Friday of Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival. So go check that out if you are going to be in attendance this year or you can join online uh, for at least the panel, I think. I'm not sure about the workshop. Yes, I think you go, You can for the panel, you can't for the workshop. We're face-to-face workshop. Who thought who would think? Who would have wow. thought? 
We'll have those details, as I said, up on the podcast. This is Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour. More of Marjorie Allingham in just a second. Stick around. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here. Flex. What? I will not have the. You uh, you will not have the. You called it the traitor's purse. It's traitor's purse. Oh, how gosh. dare you! Shout out to Anthony Horowitz, <laughs> by the way, who I believe, <laughs> I believe his latest book is oh, just good. dropped. That's good. We're getting so much mileage out of that bit. I'm really, honestly, glad we read that. It's such a good bit. Like honestly. Yeah. But yes, it is. We are reading <laughs> chapters one to seven of Traitor's Purse. Uh, and we've reached the part of the show where Flex needs to tell me what the heck is going on. Yes. Who's killed who? What is Trader's Purse? And what the heck do we mean by 15? What is 15? What, what is, is 15? 15? It haunts well, my dreams. I've I've had a few thoughts on, on 15 here. We're definitely putting a point on 15. I want to be real with you. Oh, that's terrifying. Yeah. Uh, you, you better, oh, you better okay. believe it. I'll tell you my two guesses, and they're both <laughs> okay. based okay. on- on the the letter that we get from Stanislaus. Okay, good. Uh, he says, keep your eye on the calendar. The figures 15 turn my belly whenever I see or hear them. Your belly? 15 courses of food? Is that what this is? <gasps> We've cracked yeah, the case. It's, it's written a bit like a riddle. It is, it is a bit. My two top guesses is that it is, one, a timer. Like, a you know, he observes that Thursday... 15th is two days away from where the novel begins. Mm-hmm. Perhaps there is a clock that he needs to wind back by 15 seconds to open a safe. Uh-huh. He's got 15 minutes until the bomb goes off and secretly he's already failed. And that's what was the, the cop dying. That would be very sad, wouldn't it? Yeah, that that is the more open-ended, not really sure where I'm going side of that theory. Uh, the other side of it, because it's a novel set in the war, is that he's referring to M. 1-5 or MI5 for military intelligence. It's possible. I mean, as as we've said, he's a bit of a spy. I don't really know more than that, but I think it's the, the two most reasonable explanations that I have for how little information I have at the moment. You know, we've seen 15 on cars, we've seen 15 on street signs on doors, but there, that has to all be red herrings, right? Right? It's too many of them to not be red herrings. Wasn't wasn't Anscombe's house site number 15? I'm just saying. And uh, and and Mr. Pine seemed interested by that number too. What if Pine is a is a member of MI, MI5? Oh, you reckon he's like a contact yeah. that, that that's, he's supposed to meet he's with? He's the MI5 contact for mm. uh, Campion, clearly. Do you want to tackle this murder? We've got Mr. Anscombe, Robert Anscombe, apparently. Uh, who has deceased? He he had a trip on the stairs out the front of his house. Apparently, I believe that this is Aubrey, right? Why? Because they arrive at Aubrey's place. Yeah, don't meet Aubrey immediately. Is that is that correct? Uh, I mean, they spend some time, I think, breaking in the back door. Yeah, <laughs> memory slips so that they can get and into then some clothes. Aubrey comes in and greets him later after he's getting dressed. How long do you think it takes to make to get dressed though? To get into a into a suit? I, I'm not so worried about how long it takes for him to get dressed. So much as that. Okay. If they drove from Anscombe's, Aubrey followed behind them Ooh. and arrived thereafter. The timelines match up. He has no alibi in this narrative. This is true. For the death of Anscombe. I like it. And the physical description that we have of the culprit being tall, muscly, and strong, swinging a lead pipe, yeah. as is determined by 
uh, Campion's subconscious. It's true. He does have a flash of brilliance. He's like, I understand this. I've seen the Matrix. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. The only other real character I have to suspect is Pine. Mm. Yeah, he's like there when Hutch shows up to talk about the death and kind of comes over to listen. So he's my B suspect because maybe he's like, oh no, what mistakes did I make that I can clean up for later? Which is maybe how we'd catch him down the road. Maybe, maybe. Plus, how else is Campion supposed to get the girl? Oh my goodness. If... (laughs) If if Aubrey doesn't go to prison, well, don't ben, don't you on. know that in all previous novels, whenever he has a lady he fancies, they end up either the criminal or getting taken away or murdered. I believe. Yeah, but that's how he establishes how strong of a character he is by realizing that his love to this girl that he promised to wed at the age <laughs> her age of seventeen isn't as important as justice. I was gonna say you were feeling very romantic there, but I take it back. You went you went full justice. I can't believe you've done this. I can't believe you've ruined everything for me. I guess I guess my question is with all this talk of you shut your mouth. With all this talk of secret societies, like what what is going on here? Why why is Anscom even being killed at this at this stage? Why is that happening? I wanna say that he was probably a contact for who and what purpose well he, <laughs> like i, I yes. assume that the letter from stanislaus telling him to go to anscom was meant to be going to him as an informant for some reason mm. um i don't necessarily think that he is on our suspect list because otherwise he probably wouldn't be dead what if he's not dead what then what it- what then <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna pass on that question i'll be perfectly honest you know what Fine, you get one free pass. That could be the pass. One free okay, pass. Continue. I don't think he's he's alive still. That man was face down in that bed being poked and prodded by police officers for a bit too long to get away with just playing okay, dead. Fair enough, fair enough. Continue then, continue. Oh, God, you're doing a good job of throwing me off, though. I'm, I'm losing my train of thought all over the I'm place. I'm doing here. my best. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so yeah, Anscombe is a contact. It's entirely possible that it ends up that the reason Anscombe dies at the time that he does is actually because Lady Amanda has sold him out. He was in the car with Amanda while they were tailing Campion. I mean, I'm surprised you haven't tried to pin Amanda. Like, you say that Aubrey would have had the time to go and go and kill Anscombe, you know, while everybody was getting dressed, get ready for the party, but, like, couldn't have Amanda just snuck off and done the same thing? I'm just saying. Maybe it was for a good reason. Maybe it was a good murder. You don't know. Shout out to Robert God. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I would say that Anscombe has probably i mean he was invited to this bridge thing and if he was the informant then it means he's probably turned on the bridge institute for whatever plan for power they had Mm. given that the book is titled traitor's purse i'm going to assume that somehow it is financial whether he is like claiming federation on the town of bridge inside the borders of the united kingdom i like it yeah as an attempt to overthrow the monarchy whether it is uh, he wants to have a group of 25 people sat in chairs watching Albert Campion perform <laughs> yeah. uh, juvenile circus tricks for them in a dark underground tunnel to punish him for ever being interested in Lady Amanda. It does sound like fun. I, I can't say for sure. <laughs> Look, I like all these theories. These are all excellent. These are, these are me quality theories. I'm on board. Good, good. Yeah, I, I, I think it is a play for power by Aubrey and Anscombe's betrayed him, and that Campion didn't kill the police officer that he was alleged to have killed. What? What makes you say that? Uh, because 
I feel like it. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't even ask about anything to do with that part of the novel. You're like, oh, yeah, maybe he didn't kill a police officer. Like, okay. Do you think he just, like, roughed him up? It's That's, like, the vibe? You think maybe he just punched him in the face, left him for dead, but he's not actually dead? No, maybe uh, the real traitor in the traitor's purse was actually with him in the hospital there, mm. them having gotten into a scuff-up. Uh, where they both knocked each other out. And the dramatic irony would have been that if he just stayed there in that damn hospital, he would have been able to stop all of this before it happened. Some pretty intense irony you're working with there. I can, I can dig that. Yeah. That's a real, a real faux pas. Thank you. I think, that's, I think I'm using that correctly. No, I like it. Look, I'm excited. <laughs> I'm excited to see how many of your theories pan out because uh, as I have kind of alluded to, Marjorie Ellingham's novels are not heavy on the detection they're not heavy on the puzzles no um no. there is a mystery there is a murder but like if you'd said that anscombe hasn't even been killed like by a named character they just like tripped and fell and you know it was fine they just like cracked the head open by accident that's or ridiculous. by trap like that's i would have i would have said that's like fine <laughs> i believe i believe you with that anyway i think <laughs> i feel like you've you've more or less put forward a theory you're, you're putting Aubrey forward? Is that your, your final answer? It's Aubrey in the Anscombe's courtyard with the large metal rod mm-hmm. for the powerful dictatorship of a dancing champion. I like this. <laughs> I like that you had to specify dancing. Uh, you, you will have uh, a similar stretch of chapters to kind of dig into things. Uh, because next week for the trip, I almost did it. I almost said it. You almost said it. I'm keeping that in. No. <laughs> next week. For Traitor's Purse, we'll be covering chapters 8 to 14, uh, and we'll see if you can figure out what the great the great scheme is, the great hubbub, before it's too late. Uh-oh. Oh, ticking clocks. It's going to be great. I look forward to it. Herds. Flex. Bid the audience farewell. Thank you for listening to Death of the Reader, Traitor's Purse. It has been wonderful. It's a really, it's a really good time. I, I, I miss London. It's good to be back. <laughs> This is your murder mystery world tour. We'll see you next time. <laughs>